0: Hi, friends! Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy.
1: guys. Welcome back to Becoming Buffy. Today, we are talking about season five, episode seven, Fool for Love. And I don't know about you guys, but when I approach episodes like this one, it's always with a lot of fear and trepidation because this is a big episode. This is huge. This is one of those episodes that... I feel like is in the top 10 of maybe even top five of the show. Um, It's one that sticks out with you. Like once you've seen it, you will remember it. It's one that most people point to as even their favorite episode of the entire series. There's something just eye-catching about it. There's something so cinematic about it. Um, And it's a tight episode. Like every single scene, they make it count and it's got everything. I don't know. What do you guys think of this episode?
2: I have a love-hate relationship with episodes like this, like Sarah said. I was, like, watching it, and I was like, oh, it's such a good episode. And then I was like, oh, my God. It took me, like, three hours writing down just, like, my notes for this episode. And then I was like, can we go back to, like, where the world things are (laughs) in season four? Because I breezed through that episode.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. And again, I'm awful at this. I do this every time. But before we jump into the episode, we have two guests with us. We have our brother, David, here with us. And then we have Kimberly. Kimberly, you were with us for Something Blue, right? Something Blue, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was like, that feels so long ago. Back in the trenches of season four. So welcome, you guys. Thanks for coming and joining us today.
3: Yeah. I'm always happy to be here.
1: Very excited. Love Spike. So, you know, I'm here for it. It's a good episode a very good episode. So, all right, there is a lot to talk about that. I say that all the time. I say that frequently, but this episode, you guys know me, you guys know this episode, so we're just going to jump in. All right, so written by Douglas Petrie, who I have said it over and over again As, apart from Joss Whedon, Douglas Petrie is my favorite writer of the series. Um I have just found that I love his all the episodes he has written so far and he consistently turns out Really great episode. So he wrote Revelations, Bad Girls, Enemies, This Year's Girl, The Initiative, No Place Like Home, things like that. If if there's an episode that has his name on it, I'm, I get excited, just like Joss Whedon. Um, all right, so it was directed by Nick Mark, who Nick Mark actually directed Something Blue, Checkpoint. Life serial, <laughs> Double Meat Palace, Beneath You, and Conversations with Dead People. So his. Double Meat Palace
2: buff- is a random one.
1: In between all those <laughs> other ones. They're all really <laughs> great episodes, and then yeah. it's that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you remember it, right? So that's kind of the point. True. <laughs> so yeah, he also has an interesting style because I feel like something blue, a Checkpoint, Beneath You, and Conversations with Dead People have somewhat cinematic feels or are very different in how they're shot or have something unique about them. So he he knows how to pick them. Uh, yeah. And the episode aired November 14th, 2000. So the original title was going to be Love's Bitch. And I think we all know where that came from, from, from Spike's speech in Lover's Walk. Um, I'll talk more about that in a second. But The episode is named after a play of the same title by Sam Shepard. The play's two protagonists, Eddie and May, struggle with an intense attraction to each other that disgusts them because they are half-siblings. They meet in a motel after years of being apart, and Eddie tries to convince May to come back and live with him, to which she vehemently refuses. She says that she has absolutely no interest in living with Eddie, that she has a job and a new life, and that going back to Eddie would create the same destructive cycles as before. Its main themes are identity and the power Haunting the Present, which ties in very well with this episode. The episode was nominated for the Hollywood Makeup Artist and Hairstylist Guild Awards in the category Best Period Hairstyling in a Series. Um, and this episode actually is our first crossover episode of the series. Uh, David and Kimberly, have you guys seen the Darla episode over on Angel?
3: Mm-mm. I meant to this head. week, and then I got very busy, so Thank I am you. sorry. I told
1: them to, Sarah. I, I <laughs> Thank tried. you, Tabby. No,
2: <laughs> she, she did.
3: She reminded me a couple times, and then I <laughs> I still got busy and didn't do it. So, But this is an excellent chance for you to tell us exactly what happened in that
1: episode. Sarah. <laughs> uh, uh, way to stroke my giving ego. giving you more work. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I had a feeling you wouldn't. So I did my homework. You're welcome. <laughs> No, if you guys get the chance, I highly recommend watching that. All of the crossover episodes so far on the series have played an integral part. It's possible to watch both shows without seeing the crossover. But as someone who watched the crossover for the first time only a few years ago, like about three or four years, I was shocked when I watched it. I was like, I can't believe I didn't know this episode didn't exist. I can't believe that it gives insight to this in full for love. Um, it's the other half of the story in a lot of ways. In some ways it's very standalone, but we learn about Darla. It's Darla's origin story. Uh, It has Angel in there. There's actually quite a few things that they show from a different perspective. There's two scenes in particular that they show both on Darla and in Fool for Love. So that makes it really fun. Um, But yes, Darla aired the the next hour after Fool for Love. So Fool for Love aired first, then Darla. And it's funny because a lot of A lot of people were very angry after they saw Fool for Love because they felt like Angel where everything fell in the timeline. And this is kind of – this is spoilers for Darla. But in the Boxer Rebellion scenes, if you are paying attention to the dates, Angel's supposed to have a soul in that scene.
3: I was actually kind of wondering that because I was thinking about that Mm -hmm. while we were watching the episode. I was like, I thought Angel already had his soul by now.
1: And he does. And that's what you find out over in Darla. It seems out of character for Angelus
2: to respond that way in the moment too. It seemed like a little bit too like um, human emotions or soul yes. emotions. Well, he's also like, if you can tell,
0: or if you watch it with the mindset of like, oh, he's Angel, not Angelus. A lot of the things he does makes a lot more sense. Like he's trying to be cautious. He's not trying to make a scene. He's not trying mm-hmm. to like... Uh-huh. um and he plays it off as like, oh, I'm concerned of getting hunted. But it's right. more so like, he doesn't want to kill people. He doesn't want to do all this stuff. And he doesn't know how to say that. So it's like, like it's interesting because Spike is threatening his kind of safe zone that he's created. But it you don't understand that.
3: When we were watching the episode the other day, I even said that I would think that a vampire would want to use all the chaos in a situation like that mm-hmm. and revel in it and want to feed and everything.
4: Yeah. You're saying it's like prime time for vampires. Yeah, for sure. Yeah,
3: Like Angelus would take advantage of all that chaos.
2: Well, and even the way he says like, um, uh, this place reeks of, uh, what is it? Fear. And then Drusel is like, Oh, it's intoxicating. The way they both talk about it is very different. The way the angel says it is very like, 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 it's gross, Disgusting. like I want to leave.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And then Drew's like, oh, I want – like this is intoxicating. I love it. Like it, the, the nuances, how they acted that was really good.
1: Actually, in the episode – and we'll talk about when we get to the scene, but the way that it comes off in this episode is that Angelus or Angel is jealous of Spike and his kill. And what mm-hmm. we actually find out in Darla is – Angelus is actually disgusted by what's happening, and he's actually trying to protect a group of missionaries who are behind him in an alleyway, which is why he tries to get everybody to go. And so it really changes your perspective. And what is really cool is because in real life, everybody has a different perspective, right? So by doing that and showing from Spike's point of view and then Darla's and Angel's, it Makes it feel more real because, of course, each character is going to have a different way that they view the same event. So it's just it's fantastic. And so a lot of people were really angry, and then they watched Darla and were like, "Okay, so they did not forget. There wasn't a continuity error."
2: Can we get a a Drusilla POV of this night?
1: Just for Drusilla's POV.
2: (laughs) I kind
4: of want one for everything she does because I do not understand her ever, and I'm like, what is she thinking? What is she seeing? They should have just a whole yeah. spin off, honestly. Oh, yes. I'd love that.
3: That'd be the most unhinged show ever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, because she's just, you could take her character anywhere because she's crazy. So it's like. I know. That would be so fun to write. Can you imagine the
4: drugs those people would be on? seriously (laughs) they'd
1: have to in order to channel her exactly um the in the darla episode they do actually show a little bit from drusilla's point of view they show the moment that she sees spike the moment she decides to pick spike um and her thinking they show the moment before that and her thought process into why she decides to do that and i'll talk about more a little bit about it once we get to it um it's not a ton but there's a little bit more of her point of view so um, all right. The episode Darla was inspired by Pulp Fiction, just the way that it is kind of pieced together. And when you guys watch it, it it kind of works with flashbacks and kind of works its way back. Kind of similar to this episode, but um, in a little bit different order. Um, the Boxer Rebellion scenes in this episode were directed by Tim Minear, who directed... The Darla episode. Um, so, what happened is the two directors, instead of having to like get all the actors for two separate shoots, they would, they shared notes and said, Hey, I'm going to need this scene. I'm going to need this scene with your characters. And so, um, Tim Mynheer did all of the boxer, boxer Rebellion scenes and then sent over the clips to the director of this episode. And then um, different other scenes, I think the scenes when. Spike gets turned and all that stuff were shot by the other director. So they kind of work together, which I'm like bittersweet about because if you guys know how the shows end up going on separate networks and that kind of stops, it's like, ugh, it's so fun to watch how well the two shows work together while also telling their own separate stories, which is I think the best way to do it. All right. So the key to tying the two shows together lay in the characters, Angel, Darla, Spike, and Drusilla, who've naturally crossed paths at different times over the centuries. What we decided to do was completely separate stories, although there would be natural instances in which the characters would cross paths, explained Mynir. So in Spike's story on Buffy, you'll see scenes that will actually repeat in the Angel episode, but will be from a slightly different point of view. There are a few scenes in both that are not in each episode, and there's actually one point in history where they all came together. In the Spike episode, it has a particular meaning for Spike, but in the Angel episode, we discover that there were pieces in Buffy that make it mean something else. This episode was originally going to be written by David Fury, who passed on it because he didn't quite buy into the message that Joss had in mind about Spike. He says, I bucked on doing Fool for Love. I had an opportunity to do the episode, but because I couldn't buy into it, it went to Doug Petrie, and he did an amazing job. He sort of almost kind of convinced me. Because he did such a great job with that episode, I went, gee, I wish I'd done it after all. It still kind of weirded me out that Spike, a soulless creature, could fall in love. I kept saying, it's just an infatuation. It's only external. It's only this. He can't possibly be in love. He has no heart. He has no soul, which we will obviously discuss later on. This is James Marsters speaking right now. He says, my idea was that Spike should fall in love with Buffy. Of course, she never reciprocates because he's way beneath her, but he should fall in love with her and he should try to be good and constantly fail to comedic effect or or to horrifying effect, whichever episode you're doing. But you can go a lot of directions with that and that will work really well. That wasn't their idea. So for me, it became, how do you do severe migraines without messing up your hair? I stole a page out of William Shatner's book. If you notice, we do severe headache, very similar, which we put our knuckles to the side of our head. We don't put our hands through our hair. If you mess your hair up, it's gonna take another hour to reset that. I guess about mid-season, I was hungering for some swagger. I was like, Spike is getting really soft here. Even my brother, who is so supportive of everything i do was like dude you need to get some balls
3: (laughs) that's pretty funny and i think this is what that's one of the reasons why a lot of people like this episode because you're you're tired of seeing spike who was like the most badass vampire just get crapped on for about two seasons straight and like seeing him get a couple wins is is fun because you're like oh (laughs) there's the old spike
0: (laughs) well on top of it i think that making him in love with buffy however that looks like for a vampire was a mm-hmm. I honestly think it was a good move on their part because a it totally makes sense. We've seen him obsessed with her since season mm-hmm. two. It explains everything with Drusilla, but also it it gives him a reason and a motive for why he keeps coming back and staying and putting up with yeah. all of this is because even subconsciously he had this obsession with Buffy.
2: Well, realistically, there was no reason for him to be in season four. Like when you really look at it, you're like he would have left. Like, okay, so he got a chip in his head. He probably would have gone somewhere to have someone take it out after that doctor didn't do his job. Like, there's no way. So I feel like having there be another reason, like Leah said, um, to stick around and also kind of brings out different dynamics in himself in general. It brings out like another part of him that we kind of knew was there, um, but we can kind of dive into more. Mm -hmm.
1: James Marsters goes on and says, What that episode did for me is explain the dichotomy between someone who could truly love his girl and be completely sweet and loving to her and also be a soulless spawn of hell. That was always to me the most interesting thing about Spike. It was never really addressed. I have thought sometimes maybe it's best not to. I think they did about as well as you could. Spike's progression is the progression of a lot of males, which is early years, not really finding yourself, not really finding your strength, and then finding something that really hooks you and helps you become yourself. The thing I finally understood when I think about Joss and the way he worked, he and Marty. I don't think the cool is that interesting to them. I think that they can set it up and achieve it effortlessly. I think that it was usually a setup for something much more fallible and much more human and much more goofy and pained and tortured and humiliated. That's what really great writing addresses, the human condition and all its frailty and all its vulnerability. At first, when they started taking my character down from the height of cool that they had placed me, it was a little bit scary. Eventually, I understood why." So that was James Marsters. All right. So this is this is crazy, but this is the first Spike-centric episode of the series. Can you guys believe that? We've had episodes that have kind of talked a little bit about, like, or not talked about Spike, but have had Spike as kind of like a foil for somebody else. But this is the first episode that is fully about Spike. Um, and that's crazy. Like the season three one
2: could like kind of be, but it wasn't fully.
1: Yeah. Spike, it was Willow. You know? Willow and Xander and their affair and Buffy and Angel. Yeah. It was just everyone, all the lovers. Yeah. Spike was just the big bad of that episode. And in this episode, he kind of is the big bad as well, but in a just a very different way. Or I guess I should say the monster of the week, not the big bad, but you guys know what I mean. So apart from being absent in season three, Spike has been in the show since season two, but we've known very little about his backstory. And this episode continues the parallels that I've been talking about between Riley and Spike, showing how they both are looking to Buffy for purpose and fulfillment. Both of them are drawn to danger as a way of feeling alive and finding meaning, yet both know she doesn't love them. They both seem to have an inferiority complex with both feeling the need to prove themselves to others. And it's massively hinted at that Spike, his mommy, issues, just like Riley. Um, And the title and even the content of this episode, again, comes from Lover's Walk in season three with Spike's famous loves bitch speech. And I wrote this when talking about season three, because usually when an episode is pointing back to another episode, there's something thematically that they want you to take from that and apply it to the character. They've done this a ton of a ton with Tara. They've done it with Riley. They've done it with Buffy. Um and season three's theme was choice. And integrity and responsibility. Um, and so we discussed before how season three focuses on that and how each one contributes to the overall series view that living a life full of meaning and purpose is better than constantly pursuing personal happiness. Um, and in Beauty and the Beast, Platt warns, the psychologist warned Buffy, that losing oneself in love or desire allows it to control and master you, a theme that we see repeated in Spike's speech in Lover's Walk. So the difference, however, is that Spike does not view being lost in love is a bad thing because he's a vampire. Um, it's not even a thing that he thinks can or should be controlled. And his return in lover's walk was really clever because his on-screen romance with and heartbreak with Drew allowed him to be an example of someone whose entire identity is wrapped up in another being. And we see that in this episode as well. Spike's view of, view of love is a twisted version of the real thing, and he is incapable of loving in an unselfish way. This is even more evident when comparing Spike's attitude of entitlement and possession towards Drew with his feelings towards Buffy. Um, And so like Spike's innate insecurity drives him to seek identity and validation in whatever woman he's obsessed with, kind of like Riley. So Cecily rejects his status in his poetry, leading him to Drusilla, who being capable of reading his mind tells him what he wants to hear. Yet as a vampire, Spike continues to struggle with being enough for Drew in comparison to Angelus. So then he adopts the Spike persona as a direct response to his feelings of inadequacy. And then he continually chases the rush of sex, violence, and death as a way to feel powerful and in control of himself. Um, So that's kind of like what this episode is pointing back to. It's this idea that like in order to find meaning and purpose in your life and being confident with who you are, you should not change yourself based on others' ideas of you. And Spike's entire persona is him trying to reinvent himself based on what others want. So I, I thought that was really interesting and that'll be something to think about going forward. Um, and then the last thing, i sorry, this is like the longest intro ever, but the last thing I want to say is this episode is so fun to watch. It's flashy. It's edgy. It's funny. It's kind of epic in a lot of ways. Um, and it's no secret that Spike is a lot of people's favorite character. He's so fun to watch. He's a lot of your guys' favorite character. Um, and because of this, not saying you guys, but because of this, a lot of people really struggle when Spike is criticized. Um, And so I kind of want to just be mindful of that going into it. Like I want to be fair in our criticism, but I want everybody to know that like, we don't dislike Spike. I enjoy him as a character, but it's really important To note that Spike is portrayed as an unreliable narrator in this episode in particular. So not everything that he says in this episode is truth. And I've noted a lot of people take what Spike says as truth. And that's not always the case. Some of it is truth. Absolutely. But as Joss does with any great villain, there's going to be some lies mixed in with the truth because that's how the best manipulators operate. You have to have a little bit of truth in there. Um and so we kind of had the episode Darla, to kind of compare to this on top of future and past episodes and I don't think Spike
4: honestly probably thinks he's lying in what he's saying because he, he over uh like dramatizes over dr- dramatizes there we go that's the exact word that i was thinking of um he's so based on feelings and in the moment and what's you know that he probably i think he really believes everything that he's saying but you do have enough you do have to have enough discernment in listening to him where it's like okay i know spike and i know how he thinks and it's like i'm sure he believes that but is this always the truth eh, maybe not
1: and I think sometimes he thinks that he – he is insightful. He really is. But I think sometimes he thinks that he knows what other people are thinking better than they know themselves. And that is sometimes true, but sometimes it's not. And so sometimes he kind of oversteps and says <coughs> – Crush. Yeah. 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 Like Crush. with Buffy. <laughs> yeah. With Buffy and with other things. And so it's really important to go just because some things that Spike says – end up being true later doesn't make everything he says here correct. And how he's portrayed in this episode isn't always correct either. So we'll talk about that and stuff. But I just I wanted to point that out. It's important to remember that Spike has two motivations in this episode. Have Buffy, which whether that's in killing her or sexually, which that seems to be kind of the same thing at this point. Or two, look nothing like the human he used to be, which is going to change how he talks about himself in this episode. So
2: um, when we were watching this episode, David, Ka- Kimberly, and I, um, I want to say Catherine every time that always happens. It sucks. you both have like a k name. It's very frustrating. Yeah, I talk talked to my parents <laughs> Um, we were, we were watching, um, the episode and, um, kudos to me for remembering to say it right now. Cause otherwise, I don't know how I would have remembered, but the, is it on purpose that the vamp that she fights in the beginning dressed in, in like an eighties
1: outfit. It's meant to look like Spike. Okay, thank you.
2: Mm -hmm. I needed affirmation about this. Yes. Yep.
1: (laughs) It does. I love when she like fights like Kimberly's
2: like it does not. Kimberly's like,
3: ah but he's not hot, so I'm not yeah, everybody. Like, when you're so. to the podcast,
4: of course you can't see my face, but yeah, it was a very incredible. I don't think
2: so. <laughs> it's just the wig, <laughs> <laughs> therefore does not look like Spike. <laughs> in <valid. laughs> I think it's supposed to represent like you know Spike's aesthetic and like him like in like the uh, upper '70s, killing that other Slayer. Like it's supposed to be reminiscent of that. Yeah. To me. Sure.
1: Sure. Okay. <laughs> Kimberly's like, you guys not see the resemblance.
2: <laughs> 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 they have similar hair.
3: Oh, and we'll, we'll get to this later on when we were talking about the actual scenes. But every single time Riley came on scene, me, Tabby, and Kimberly were like,
0: I literally, so I was, Simon and I were watching a show and then I was like, oh, I have to watch like the episode just, you know. He's like, do you want to watch it with me? And he was like, "Sure, I guess." Well, I didn't really give him much of an option. I was like, "I'm actually watching it now. You, you can watch it with me." <laughs> um, and he has never seen an episode before. I gave him very little context. He all he knows is like little things that I've talked about. And I, this is the worst episode to show, only because it paints Riley in this like heroic picture <laughs> i know he was like fine, just not accurate yeah. and so like every time he came on screen i was like oh my god riley and he was like what like what's wrong <laughs> with him because riley barely speaks in this episode all he does is patch like buffy up and i was like you don't get it like you don't get it he's an idiot he's a loser like this episode it's it, the only reason he, he like defends cool his is girlfriend multiple is times this episode too yes he looks all heroic
3: simon's like oh no riley's my favorite character Leah's <No, laughs> like uh yeah engagement <laughs> yeah, off. literally
0: but i was like i was like kicking myself i was like bro this this episode makes buffy look so weak and looks like riley saves her from everything i was like
2: oh my gosh like this is so awful well i mean it's so funny too because if he's never seen the show before like buffy literally gets staked by her own stake so quickly in this opening scene like it's literally i
0: forgot that was the opening i was like
2: oh i
0: was like he's gonna think Buffy's always this week (laughs) yeah
2: and this is the first time that's ever happened and like especially with her own weapon like Mm -hmm. i I always forget that's how this episode starts off like it takes us a while before we even see spike um and there's a lot of build up and i I always forget that she gets like and that oh gosh when she pulls it out whoever did that's That part because you could feel the tension of her like ripping it through her skin. I'm like, dang, like props to you, because I could oh man, I could feel it.
3: And the whole time I was thinking, like, wood is notorious yep. for creating horrible infections. And like you do not want to go to stabbed the hospital. Too.
1: I was like, babe. I know.
3: <laughs> Riley's all like,
1: you should go in the hospital. I was like, where was this energy three or four episodes ago when you were literally about to have a heart attack, Riley? Like, come on, man. <laughs>
2: He was angsty back then, Sarah. Give him a break.
1: Oh, yeah. He's had so much character development
2: since then. My bad.
3: Simon's like, what a good guy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Who's Noah, this Riley, dude? Thankfully,
0: he's the. Really like yeah, he's the quietly like watches type. But if he was the one who was like, I don't understand, I'd be like, you don't get it. <laughs>
1: literally, shut up. Like, <laughs> Leah's gonna go put on. And Doom then he left <laughs> just so we can see.
0: Well, and then he left to take like the longest poo of my, of his life, <laughs> like at the, the most important part of the movie or the episode. I was like, okay. He left, Why did literally. You because i didn't think it would be that long he just like walked away so i was like oh he's gonna go pee and then he was just gone the episode was over and then it came out when it, the credits rolling. he's like is it over i was like oh my gosh
3: he's like oh, so where's the riley spinoff off
0: yes he's like, he like is riley
2: the next episode i'm like
0: you're never watching another episode ever
2: again <laughs> leah's so offended Lee is the number one Riley hater, too. Like, it's the number one.
0: So He's just deeply so triggering. I know.
1: I was like, oh. Uh, that moment when Riley tackled the vamp, though, I was like, guys, this is the first time I will say this, but I've never been so thankful for Riley and his normally unwanted graveyard pop-ins. <laughs> like, thank God
2: you know but you know what i was thinking like when she's like all injured and she like slumps against him in my brain i was like this is exactly the relationship <laughs> he wants he wants to mm-hmm. be the person to like find her all wounded and like be like oh she needs me carries her back because she collapsed and then helps like like bond her wound well that's why he drives her in this episode is because buffy's at her weakest yep. so he's like finally i can shine well, and then he goes and has like a death wish when he goes and like like stakes the vamp later and then nukes the crypt like, oh my, like, yeah. buddy. He leaves
3: Willow, the most powerful member of the entire group, behind and then goes yeah. in on his own.
1: <laughs> well, I think this shows that Riley, at this point, it's no longer about Buffy. It's no longer about Buffy needing him. The yeah. fact that he's going in there with a death wish, this is something that Riley needs to figure out. And I've been saying this this entire season, Riley's entire identity has been wrapped up in Buffy to the point where he doesn't know who he is and because she doesn't want him to come pat- come patrol with her because she's afraid he's going to get hurt and stuff, he, he's – he's completely consumed by her and proving himself to her. And that's what this episode is. This isn't him trying to protect Buffy. This is him trying to prove himself to himself and to her. And mm-hmm. it's not good. It's very codependent.
2: Yeah. Maybe Riley has a death wish, not the he does.
1: No, he does. There's he definitely a conflict between Riley and Spike and Spike has a death wish. At this point, Buffy doesn't have a death wish. So Spike is kind of projecting, but it's definitely on Riley as well.
2: Anyway, so night in shining armor, Riley comes and grabs his girlfriend, brings her back into the house and binds her wounds. Um, And she's like, no, I don't need to go to the hospital because that'll freak Joyce out. Um, I'll just keep it to myself. And then Dawn just comes bursting in. She's like, sorry to interrupt the sex capades. But Bob's coming up.
0: This is also (laughs) such a sibling thing where it's like, we're against each other but we're united against the parent like yeah honestly <laughs> yep. so valid and like I, I mean there is a double a where they like they are trying to kind of relieve the stress off of the mom but it's also just like it's so yeah. accurate how quickly like siblings can be in tune with what's going on and like find a way to like help <laughs> the
2: other one out without even like expressing a concern well, and even she like offers or she doesn't offer, but she like reluctantly without too much like uh, probing takes all of her chores for her. And I think it's this like unknown thing where it's like we don't want to add more stress to Joyce because um, if it was just Buffy's chores, she'd be like, no, you've handled like worse, you know, like like, you know, Don would say that. But I think it's like this unknown thing where it's like we both have a collective love for our mom. Um
1: And, like, I'll take care of your chores for you, you know? Joyce seems tired. She has that drained look that, you know, when you're in chronic pain. um, And it's also kind of strange to see Buffy taking on more responsibility at home. Like, Joyce talking about wanting to, like, discuss the grocery list. Um, I think this kind of shows that this – whatever this is that Joyce is dealing with is really affecting her. Um, And this is also going to start affecting Buffy as we see at the end of the episode. Like, she's taking on more adult responsibility.
2: And you know what I love too? Like Buffy like kind of – um, I mean even though she's annoyed with Dawn in this moment, like before she walks in or even I think when Joyce leaves actually, like she shows her her wound like, mm-hmm. um, and it's like this little like, hey, like I'll let you know kind of what's happening. But like obviously like you can't tell mom. You can never come patrolling. But it's like this kind of this part of her that's like – like Sarah said, I think that Buffy is starting to kind of step into some some sort of – more parental role with Dawn. Mm-hmm.
1: It also shows too that Buffy doesn't completely see Dawn as an annoyance anymore. Like the last episode, family is when Buffy fully embraces Dawn, um, yeah. even though she's not actually a part of her family. And so this episode, we saw that conscious choice on Buffy's part to be like inclusive of Dawn, recognizing that like, like there's sympathy and compassion for her, and even how she kind of plays with her hair too. You can see that in her mind constantly.
2: So we end the scene with Buffy making Riley promise that he'll take the gang with him to patrol tonight. And here comes my one of my favorite scenes of the episode.
1: (laughs) Uh, Oh, it kills me. I'm shocked Riley didn't come out in full initiative gear, honestly.
2: (laughs) Too bad he wasn't like in the initiative because imagine if he was taking like a little walkie and he's like, this is Lilac one. (laughs) No and crunch. they're all, like, making fun of him <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with the chips and everything.
3: Riley's got his penis gun from Hush.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, let us not speak of <laughs> it again. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I, I have to say, I know, like, we've said this many times, but Nicholas Brendan's um, timing with comedy has always been really stellar, but like this scene in particular, he was making me crack up. He was so funny. He was like, "Hey, Riley, wh- what's this about?" <laughs> she, like the choo-choo. <laughs> well, and Anya is like in like a full dress, and her purse. She brought her purse with her, and has heels.
1: Like she clearly does not care at all. Just got off from work, you know, at the magic shop yep. with Giles. To do a little nighttime patrolling, <laughs> none of them are wearing nighttime
2: colors. Like, it's just so funny. Everything about this is so funny to me.
3: They're loudly eating chips in the <laughs> graveyard.
2: <laughs> yeah, Anya's probably not bothered at all. She's
4: older than anything they're going to see that night
1: anyway.
3: And she's <laughs> True. like, <"Okay>, whatever.
1: <laughs> she's like, I've done worse. I'm not worried. Yeah, yeah exactly. for real.
2: <laughs> um, and then back over at the magic shop, we see Giles and Buffy researching about past layers and what exactly went down when each of them um got killed in battle and i feel like this is such an interesting thing we've never kind of approached in this mm-hmm. series so far and i don't know why i just it never occurred to me and i think it never really occurred to buffy because i think she was up until this point i feel like she was just trying to survive and hone her skill that i think thinking about like I mean, obviously, when you go into different apocalypses, you're thinking, like, okay, well, I am I might die. Like, it's, there's a good chance I will die. But I think you're also trying to think of, like, I need to get through this apocalypse outside of myself because there's a greater evil and there's a greater good to fight for. Whereas, like, there's no big threat as of right now that's really, like, stressing everyone out so much that she's thinking big picture. She's thinking, like, my life. Like, mm-hmm. how have these slayers – been trained and gone through their life being slayers and what made them slip up in this moment. Um and it's interesting that none of them are really documented in detail. Um and I love this conversation with her and Giles because obviously we know that Giles like is a different watcher and is it like isn't like any of the other ones that we've seen uh based on current times but like this brought on this whole different perspective of like Have there been other Watcher Slayer dynamics that have been this paternal, Mm -hmm. this close? Um, Because we haven't Mm -hmm. seen that with any other ones that have come in from the council. So what do you guys think?
1: Yeah. I mean, Giles seems to indicate that there is. He's like, if they're anything like me, then this would be too difficult and too painful. I think it's inevitable they're going to get close. I don't know that they're as paternal as you call it. Like it isn't as much of a father-daughter relationship or, you know, a mother-daughter depending upon, you know, if it was a female watcher. Um, But I agree with you. Like this is a very different side of things. Um, It's something we haven't really thought about since Prophecy Girl. And in a lot of ways, even we as the viewer have gotten really comfortable with the fact that Buffy will just make it out of every situation as we've seen her do for four seasons. So we forget that the Slayer doesn't live very long because Buffy has seemed untouchable. And because Buffy's already died. So I think in a lot of ways we're like, she's already done that. So she should be fine for the rest of the well, season. Right.
2: And, like didn't they then they say that most of them don't even make it past their 18th birthday. So she's already made it a couple of years past yeah. that. And even still then, I'm I'm yeah. every year the statistics go up higher. Um or lower, I mean. So
1: I feel like like she's yeah. what, twenty now? She'll be twenty. She hasn't turned twenty. Sure. She's nineteen at this point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you forgot about helpless, the Crucimentum. If they reach 18, they probably, they most of them probably die with the Crucimentum so that a younger well, that's, one can That's rise. what I meant. So, so 18. I,
2: I insinuated oh, that it gotcha. was her birthday. Yeah yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, even that, she made gotcha. it out, you know?
3: Well, that and like, uh, if Buffy was going to be in danger, you would think it would be like the big bad of the season, not some friggin' Van Halen looking yep. vamp in the middle of nowhere, you know, by himself or it surrounded by like a ton like. of.
2: <laughs> A kiss member without the makeup. <laughs> really still obsessed. With-
1: <laughs> he doesn't look like Spike. He has the vibe of Spike. He's the the punk, the leather. Yeah, the punk look. His hair is nothing like Spike, obviously. <laughs> but you know. Oh, so
2: Buffy goes. Oh, sorry. In, in the library, they conclude with being like, "Too bad there aren't people, you know, back then to talk to when it comes to these sorts of things." Darn. Oh wait, we literally have one. <laughs> here living in sunnydale who has killed two slayers and is still alive um so buffy goes into the crypt throws spike against the wall and he's like hey you feeling off that usually hurts and then she's like hey like you're gonna show me how you killed those two slayers and then we see them jump over to the bronze which we can only assume spike's like will take me out to dinner first
1: yes i literally wrote that i was like spike is all like um, i'm not putting out until you buy me literally <laughs> that's <laughs> what it's giving i wonder
0: he must be starving all the time because since he's like not drinking like human blood to the extent that he used to be able to i mean i'm assuming he's probably getting blood in a similar way that angel uh, angel did but still like angel adapted for like a hundred years to that whereas like spike is all of a sudden like overnight had to change his dietary, like, preferences. Like, mm. he's got to be famished, like, all the time.
3: Well, they I mean, they show uh, Spike, like, in Hush. They have him go to the refrigerator and grab a glass of blood and stuff. So, like, mm-hmm. he is drinking blood. He's just not actively hunting.
0: Well, but I—but it's not the same amount. Like, before it was, like, he yeah, was killing and true. drinking
2: every night. Now he has, like, a glass to, to keep him, like,
0: fed. I wonder,
2: I wish they talked about this a at all i don't maybe they have i don't remember but like you know how like in twilight um which if you want to hear us break down the first three movies (laughs) um subscribe to our buy us a coffee or buy me a coffee um but like you know how like edward struggles to be around bella because of like her scent and like her blood or whatever i wonder if like the slayer is extra tempting with their blood like how it's like they can't like be around them normally without like really wanting to sink their teeth in you know um because i wonder if it like annoys spike even more that's probably why he's so irritated every time he's around buffy because he's just like ah oh my gosh her blood smells so good
1: possibly because they infer that when he kills the chinese slayer when he was talking about how good her blood tastes and the master has said that too like it's it's better tasting. It's an aphrodisiac. Um, I'm, I'm more, so more like smelling other.
2: before and like a temptation. Not, not like when you're already tasting it. Like I'm just curious if it's yeah. like intoxicating before could they be. even taste it, you know? Yeah.
3: Well, I also think it's just that idea of like forbidden fruit. This is the slayer. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, the enemy. She's forbidden. Um, and so that could be just even more tempting than a normal person.
1: Yeah, she's untouchable. Mm-hmm. So, of
4: course, you want to touch. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Right, having the their conversation in the Bronze is an interesting choice of locations because the last time we saw them here together, Faith was in Buffy's Mm -hmm. body, five by five. Well, not five by five. It was in um, this year's girl. girl. Yeah. And who are you? Who are you? That's what it was. Yeah, and you had Faith in Buffy's body, completely coming on to Spike, and I'm sure that was not. Helpful <laughs> for him in his obsession with Buffy.
2: Well, and then she's like, hey, like I'll offer you some good amount of money if you tell me the details about it. And he is like, Well, if you're going to bribe me into giving like a huge secret away, you have to give me wings. Um, and then she raises her arm and winces, and he's like, Hey, I I I knew there was something off about you. So that's what it is. Like you, you, you feel like you're immortal or whatever uh she's like were you born this big pain in my ass and he's like what can i say i've always been bad yep <laughs> flash back <laughs> over to like the dorkiest version of spike the worst wig <laughs>
1: known to mankind no this one's angel's no this is better one. this is are you
2: kidding
4: you this is better so? it
2: looks like it's like it looks like it's gonna fall
4: it's off it's better his than any whatever any your than angels it. got going on though
2: no that one in the tunnels is <laughs> embarrassing he looks heinous i was like
0: oh they really did him dirty and David Boreanaz is such an attractive person. Like,
2: how did y'all do this to him? Give him a short <laughs> haircut. Like, he could get a haircut by being a vampire. Like, you don't have to stick to the long one, guys. I swear. You don't have to.
1: <laughs> they wanted to make him look extra desperate and extra dirty, extra crusty. <laughs> the best part of the Boxer Rebellion slow mo scene was all the bad wigs.
2: <laughs> Drusilla's was the best for sure.
1: Yeah. Drew and Darla's was oh it was it was pretty good it wasn't awful but the guys wigs you're just like oh get a haircut. are you sure
2: this was nominated for the best hair and makeup for <laughs>
1: it was probably
0: yes, it was. for
4: that antlered honey monster thing like whatever that was
2: oh true <laughs> the fungus demon or whatever
1: the uh, mucus
2: demon a slime demon um so this whole scene we have like a flashback to a house party 1880. Formerly known as William the Bloody for his bloody awful poetry, it seems <laughs> rough. <laughs> he like he like owns that name for decades because he was so traumatized for people like coining it that he's like, you know what? I'm going to revamp it and I am going to be willing to bloody, but I'll show you what type of bloody I'll be.
1: It's really interesting to watch where he came from and then who he is now and how they do that in this episode is just fascinating because you see each part of the persona that Spike picks up as time goes on. He literally changes his hair, his accent, his clothing, he gains a scar And, like, everything about him completely changes throughout this episode Mm -hmm. until he morphs into the person that he wants to be seen as. It's very interesting.
2: Yep. And I feel like each flashback kind of tackles a slightly different part of him. Some of them kind of overlap a little bit. But this one is, like, unrequited love part of him Mm -hmm. that's very (laughs) canonical at this point. Uh, But he's, like, writing a poem, sees Cecily – from across the room and then continues writing his poem to which he finishes really quickly, but it's like two lines. I'm like, okay. Um and he like brings <laughs> about his like notebook like in his hand. And I feel like, okay, being in conversations with people where you're trying to have like a deep conversation and one person's like, I don't like to think of those things. Those people are so annoying.
3: <laughs> I freaking hate those people. <laughs>
2: yeah. I'm like, yeah, okay. like you no know who asked you <laughs> they just walk up there's like no occasion. no they do
3: though for real (laughs) that happened all in college you'd be having a like interesting (laughs) conversation with one person and then some person randomly walking by it's like uh like why 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 are you getting in my conversation right now just to crap on it
1: yeah (laughs) or and and it always feels like those types of people are Insecure about the fact that they don't understand or don't right. know something. Which it's like there's no shame in that, but they feel they need to tear you down. And you're like, just because I am mm-hmm. excited about this doesn't mean you have to crap and on like, it. I, like, I that. That's so
2: important too, Sarah, because I feel like in those conversations, like when people have been like, Oh, I'm not really educated on this, like, can you tell it to me? I have so much respect for those people. And I yep. love that. I'm like, oh, let's have a conversation. Right. I love this. Then we both can like bounce off each other. We can research. Like Yeah, there's a total difference between that.
4: And then being like, oh, I don't think about that because I'm above it all. And that's for, you know, the lesser people to deal with.
2: Um, so I don't know the dude's name, but the really annoying one kind of like grabs the paper out of Spike's hand or sorry, William's hand. Um, reads out his poem, which says, my heart expands tis grown a inspired by your beauty effulgent, which is, I got to <laughs> say, is freaking awful. Like that is probably
1: one of the worst things <laughs> I've ever heard. <laughs> so that- yeah, it's 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 weird how it's like I don't think he means it to be, but it's like sexual, which is so yeah. funny because the rest of the episode, like you see that poetry that Spike loves so well. Here, he repeats that later on when he's talking to Buffy, and he's you know talking about how the slayers die. There's a poetry to the way that he talks yeah. that you get from here, and it's still sexual in nature. Like it's just weird how I just he don't conflated- think he knows that. Like
2: I just don't think he he himself is like. I think it's like a. I'm going to piss people off. <laughs> it's like – it's kind of incel behavior a little bit. Like It's completely incel behavior. Okay, thank you. But it's like it's, – it's kind of like this like they're incapable sometimes to kind of like separate the two. Um,
1: I don't know. It's okay. I have a whole thing later on where I think there is a subtext to it with the way that Spike – Acts towards powerful women because he was rejected by one that sure saw him as inferior. So there is a level of that that's the subtext that's there. I'm not saying that that's totally necessarily actually spike at this point, but that is the that's subtext what it's that's telling us right on.
2: now. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So they all laugh at him. They call him William the Bloody for uh, his bloody awful poetry, and then we see William go and find Cecily, who's by herself, and. This part is so hard because, like, yes, Cecily, that would be humiliating for sure because everyone knows it's about her. But, like, she is so unnecessarily cruel in this moment, like, saying, mm-hmm. like, I do see you. That's the problem. Saying things mm-hmm. like, you're beneath me as she stands up towering over him. Like, it's just – it is very cruel. Like, you can, like, be honest with them be like, hey, like, this will never happen. Um, uh, But have the respect for – another human being, especially when they're being incredibly vulnerable. And it was like- and Especially, yeah. I mean,
4: especially because he wasn't ready. Someone read the poem, like snatched out of his hands, read it for him. And then she goes and asks him if it's about her. So it's like, if you're not prepared to answer someone graciously, like, why would you do that? Why would you draw out their strongest emotions and then stomp on them for it? Like, what kind of person yep. does that? Like, I totally feel for Spike in this whole situation.
3: That like, as a writer- you, you should have the freedom to just throw things on paper and then see if they work and then go back and erase them and cross them out and, you know, go back and redo things. Like whatever you write down as the first draft is not a finished product and it should not just be read willy nilly. Like, I don't, that's what editing is for, you know? So I would be super, super mad if someone just came in and read my unfinished draft and then mocked me for it's like that wasn't even what I was planning on like ending up with and you guys just that would be that I felt for him too that would be really really crappy
1: there is a lot of theories that Um, Spike doesn't actually tell Buffy this part of the story, that Buffy was not conveyed this because of the fact that if Spike is telling Buffy, I've always been bad. And then it immediately cuts, like there's several moments where it cuts directly to something that completely contradicts what he's telling Buffy. It's possible that the the show is showing us something that didn't actually happen Mm. the way that Spike is telling it, because I personally can't see Spike telling Buffy that the most humiliating thing that ever happened in his life. Spike's trying to make himself a you're better to Buffy, which is why I think this scene is very different than the subway scene in how it's portrayed. Because there, I think that what happens, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I think what happens on the subway scene is from Spike's point of view and perspective thinking back. And this right here is like what actually happened based upon how it's portrayed to Buffy. For
2: sure. I totally agree with that, Sarah. Well, even like in Mm -hmm. the train sequence, he's talking to Buffy live. So it's, it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of like portraying this like stream of consciousness. Yes. Like he's like telling her what's Mm -hmm. happening and showing her in the moment while also talking to Buffy. Whereas this one, it's like, it's just a straight cut back. And so this is actually what happened. Um, yep. but also i would also argue too that this uh he didn't tell Buffy this part and i actually thought about this when i was watching the episode today mm-hmm. at the very end when she says you're beneath me yes. his reaction isn't a oh you just use that against me f you i'm angry yes. at you it's a right a trigger to him it's like yes. he wasn't expecting to hear that and it like, re- it's like that like that trauma only mm-hmm. you know in your head you don't tell people about yeah. and someone affirms it in the moment without them knowing and it's like deeply hurtful more yeah. than that uh-huh. they knew sometimes yeah. not all the time but sometimes it can be because it's like uh, you know uh, i that's how i viewed that
3: moment oh,
1: absolutely yep Same spike here. definitely has like
3: deep-seated inadequacy issues and yeah. then mm-hmm. like that's how he sees himself as not yeah. worthy of these powerful women which is why he gets so exhilarated by killing the slayers because mm-hmm. they are the most powerful women in the entire world and so him mm-hmm. having superiority or mastery over two of them mm-hmm. uh is like he's he described it as like it's the it was the best night of my life when he kills it's the euphoric. boxer and slayer yeah, yeah it's euphoric yeah. like um and then drew is like super into him afterwards so he gets the respect mm-hmm. of her the other most powerful mm-hmm. woman in his life and it's it's like a validation to him that oh i'm not as bad as i think i am i'm not as right. as repugnant as i think i am um so yeah i I definitely agree with that tabby
2: he can't get a leg up on this layer too i think that's what's also like making him so pissed off too it's like when a really attractive girl rejects you it's like all of a sudden all these other hot women you've hooked up with isn't enough i'm not trying to be a hater this is this is what it's telling me this is what spike has shown us this is coming from somebody who enjoys and loves spike as a character
1: the episode is called Fool for Love, and they're making an effort to portray Spike as foolish for a reason. Yeah. He's a soulless vampire. He should be portrayed as foolish.
0: Well, I mean, he's he's been consistent the whole time. He's love's bitch. He always has been. Like, yeah. for as observant he is, he's still clouded with love and lust. Like, and he
1: always has been.
4: But that's what he wants. He would rather be a fool for love than sane in any other state. Like, he doesn't want anything else.
1: Yeah. But the question is, that's not necessarily a good thing because what's happening is he is, it's taking up his entire identity. Spike has no identity other than trying to appear a certain way to women. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem because as the show talks about, when someone is not doesn't have their own identity and doesn't have responsibility integrity and is making their own choices for themselves they're shown to be stagnant and stuck and because he's a vampire that's exactly what he is so they're making an effort to show that
2: well there's also two ways for him to get validation one of them is being william the bloody as like a vampire Mm -hmm. and then the other one is through love and if both of Mm -hmm. those things are teared down in this episode oof this man is going to be explosive and that's kind of what he was so it's very on brand Um, so William runs out crying uh, bumps into what we find out later is the trio just wandering around Um, we can kind of sense that or at least in my head canon, Drusilla kind of spots him follows him into the alleyway and it's how does she know to say the word effulgent I've never heard that word ever in my life I got the feeling she was stalking him
1: Okay. So no, this is actually the first time Drusilla has ever seen him. Drusilla has been with Angel and Darla for 20 years now. They changed her 20 years ago. She's tired of being third wheel. She tells Angel or Angelus that all he thinks thinks about is Darla and she wants someone for her own. And as she's talking about how lonely she is, she wants someone, Spike bumps into them. Drusilla watches him and Darla makes a comment about how you could pick the first fool off the street. (laughs) And so then Drusilla immediately has like heart eyes and goes and follows him. And the idea is um, Drusilla is as a seer. So she's able to – and she's also able to kind of see sometimes uh, what has happened in the past. Right. The future, so she's and able to
2: kind of so fill in where he needs emotionally in that moment.
1: It's possible that Drusilla mm. knows exactly what he wants, knows exactly what he's thinking and uses that – To turn him and to get him to want to be turned, um, which is very interesting.
2: Riley, Riley, just taking vengeance on his woman or for his woman on his woman. I'm done. Same thing for his (laughs) woman. Yeah, (laughs) might as well just being the heroic person that he is. You know, just according to very admirable. (laughs) Yeah, according to Simon.
1: Well, I mean, again, I just love the comparisons between Riley and Spike. Riley seeking meaning and purpose in in danger, and then Spike in the next in the next scene, he talks about how killing made him feel more alive than anything else. I think that's how Riley feels in this episode. Well, and like,
2: I mean, kudos to Riley for like sticking the vamp with the stake like immediately, but then he kind of does like the easy way out and like nuking the whole crypt. I'm like, okay, so this it's is an just entire a kind nest of, like, of point.
1: vampires, though. Like he, yeah, he you can't just
3: one v six them.
2: Nah, if he wants to go in and be a hero, be a hero. <laughs> By dying? I mean, at least, I mean, he's
4: got some brains. He's not completely devoid of sense. That's me being, you know, really nice to him, but still.
3: <laughs> you know, I, I, I understand Riley's character pretty well. Um, it's probably one of the reasons I dislike him as much. Because um, I've, known, I've known a ton of guys yeah. like Riley, especially in the military. Um, Where their entire persona, their entire uh, character is wrapped up in being like the baddest guy, the most protective guy. They're super, super overprotective of their girls. Um, And generally when they get an opportunity to be that person that they think of themselves as, that's when they feel the most alive. And that's when they feel like, I don't know, the most validated in, in themselves And so for Riley, this is probably the best night he's had since he's met Buffy, where now he gets to protect Buffy. Now he gets to go seek vengeance on the guy that hurt Buffy. He gets to take out the vampire that hurt Buffy, and he gets to feel powerful in that moment. Mm -hmm. And so this is probably Riley at, like, you know, uh, I don't know, peak (laughs) Riley-ness.
1: Yeah, in his mind, this is his purpose right Yeah, absolutely. But he's being reckless. Um, and then we see
2: back at the bronze, uh, Spike and Buffy are doing pool, playing pool. They're doing pool, they're doing swimming, they're doing beach. Um,
4: <laughs> someone needs to tell Spike that he's Knuff.
1: <laughs> he's like, oh, I'm just Ken. <laughs>
3: <laughs> someone needs to make an edit of that. <laughs>
2: Um, Spike tells Buffy that becoming a vampire is a profound and powerful experience. Um, and then he says he got himself a gang. Um, we find out this is when he changed his name to Spike and it's like David in middle school when he's like, guys, stop calling me David. My name is Brian now. And we're like, okay.
3: (laughs) Okay. To be fair, that is my actual name. Okay. (laughs) I didn't make up some like moniker to go by. That's my literal first name though.
1: (laughs) Just messing. (laughs) <laughs> so this scene is really interesting and again for those of you who have not watched darla the darla episode is so fascinating because we see darla being turned and darla becomes a vampire through the master so the mass we see the master appearing turning darla and then after like a few flashbacks later we see the moment that um, darla presents angelus to the master and it's interesting because this scene right here mirrors that underground scene of darla introducing angel to the master angel actually mocks the master for them having to live in the sewers, saying that he would never live there and never would eat rats yep what we're seeing is a clash of ideals angel or angelus is more methodical he likes to toy with his yeah victims. for sure he and even to-
2: he says that
1: he was like he – he's like it's
2: not a kill like if it's done too easily. You want it to – it's pure artistry to kind of mm-hmm. work with and play with your prey.
1: Yep. And we have Spike who likes to live on the razor's edge.
2: Which I love that whole dialogue here because it really shows where both of them are clashing and coming from. Like, mm-hmm. And so I think it makes sense if let's say we hadn't seen the Darla episode, we wouldn't know that Angelus is Angel in the Boxer Rebellion. So like mm-hmm. having that – this setup. You could believe that Angelus is like envious of Spike in the moment. Exactly. That if you watch Darla's episode, it's not
3: that. Well, that's exactly what I thought when I saw it. I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. Angelus is just jealous that he didn't get to kill the Slayer. And this is the Mm -hmm. first time that Spike is like one up again. Yeah, Yeah. you're right, Sarah. I should have watched that episode.
1: You should have watched it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, and Angelus is actually correct too. An angry crowd ends up hurting Drew because he says, you can't keep this up forever if I can't teach you maybe someday an angry crowd will that or the Slayer. An angry crowd is what ends up hurting Drew, which is why they end up in Sunnydale in season two looking for Angel. And then that's where the Slayer is as well. And ironically, Angel's right because Spike ends up getting chipped and Drew ends up leaving him all because of Buffy. So both those things.
2: Um, and then Angelus mentions the Slayer and then Spike's like, what's that? <laughs> um, Back of the bronze, Buffy – or Spike tells Buffy that he was never scared of Slayers, that he sought them out. You know, he was just different from all the other boys, all the other vampires.
1: I think he was scared of the Slayer. That's why he sought her out. Oh, for sure. He likes it's that a challenge.
2: Yeah. yeah. And then he goes, a Slayer must always reach for her weapon. That's rule number one. And then he turns vamp face and says, I've already got mine. And then flashback to the Boxer Rebellion. This is my favorite personal flashback. Like this whole scene with – do we know her name? What's the name of the Slayer?
1: I do not know her name, um, but uh, this – the entire Boxer Rebellion scene was actually shot in Placerita Canyon. No (laughs) No way. way. (laughs) Wow. The Chinese Slayer is played by ming Q. I can't say that. Um, But anyway, she is the stunt fight coordinator for the new Osaka series that just came out on Disney. Actually, that's been
3: having some really good action in it. So good for her. Nice. Yeah.
1: Isn't that cool? She's been the stunt double and worked in stunts for a million notable movies and TV shows. She her. did Mandalorian, Book of Bubba Fat, Mulan, Shang-Chi, Teen Wolf, Iron Fist, Suicide Squad, Spider-Man, Pirates, Transformers, Kill Bill, like you name it, she's been in it. It's pretty cool.
2: Good for her. I, I was telling David and Kimberly when we were watching it, I was like, she's so pretty. Like when he like holds her out right before she's like dying, she's like, like, tell me mother, I'm sorry or whatever. Like- she has the most glistening skin and her hair and that braid is so pretty. Like, she just did such a good job.
3: I always, uh, I mean, we've talked about this in other episodes too, but um, I always wonder if the Watcher Council sets up the Slayers for failure when they get too old. Um, like, putting her in the middle of such a chaotic situation, like the Boxer Rebellion, seems like setting her up for failure. Like, they're like, oh, go into there in the most dangerous situation with no backup whatsoever. And fight off, you know, be in the vamps, fight off the vamps in there and stuff. It's like, it makes me think, like, this is never overtly stated or even really hinted, but I think that the Watchers kind of low-key want the um, Slayers to die when they get too old to be controlled easily.
0: I agree, sure, but sure. I, I think it's more so, at least in this case, in most cases, where it's not that they put them in situations where they're like, oh my gosh, I hope they die. I think it's that they don't even think about it. They're so dispensable in their mind that they're like, yeah, that's your job, go do it, because if you die, we'll just get someone else. So a lot of times, except for Buffy, they definitely have targeted Buffy because we've seen that, and even Faith too. Um, But I think, for the most part, past uh, Slayers, it has literally just been like a If you die, we'll get another.
1: I think it's interesting that in the flashback, Spike shows that the thing that is her downfall is her trying to reach for her weapon. What causes her to stop hitting him is when she grabs her weapon, which I was like, girl, you're stronger than him. Beat him until he's too weak, then slay him. But they're trying to show that she had to stop, grab her weapon. He always has his, and that's like – you know. And the imagery, the fact that they're surrounded by fire, which fire is supposed to be one of the things that a vampire can kill a vampire. It's this idea of Spike playing with fire, Spike getting as close to it as he can, because that's the thing that turns him on and makes him feel alive. Um, and mm-hmm. we see that the two things that Spike is most known for, which is his scar and his coat are both given to him by slayers. Um, that scar mm-hmm. is given to him by her. And then the other slayer, the New York slayer, he gets, obviously gets the coat. So it's just, it's interesting mementos.
2: Or trophies. Cause even mm-hmm. when he gets the scars, he starts laughing and then yep. he takes the coat off of the second slayer too. Yep. 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 And then Drusilla comes in and she's wearing like a white nightgown, which I thought was very – maybe not a nightgown,
1: but it's just like a white a dress. That's just the way they dressed um, back then.
2: <laughs> yeah. She wears white nightgowns in season two, but not in this scene. Um, very erotic. Like he's very much like high off the fact that he, like he took down the slayer. Drusilla's mm-hmm. very into that. And this whole scene is just very like beautifully shot. Like, like the fire – the um the chaos. Yeah, I just like everything about it, I just really loved. And then we see them in the streets later on. Both of them are just like high off of life. And then they decide to leave and we get this iconic slow-mo.
1: Both episodes. This is the only shot that both episodes have that's the exact same, except they all they focus in on Darla and Angel. So this one is on Drusilla and Spike, but they do close-ups of Darla and Angel in the Darla one. And the music is different. The two composers intentionally did not work together because they wanted them to have very different feels. And the music is epic in both of them. It's just, it's literally iconic.
2: That's cool. I need to rewatch this in a minute. It's good. It's so good. And then we back at the bronze, Spike is like it was the best night of my life and I've had some really sweet ones. And then he kind of like goes off on this thing where it's like each vampire is hoping to have what he calls a good day, which is Mm -hmm. like just that one moment where the Slayer either like loses her weapon or has that moment of a slip up so they can just slip in and kill them.
1: Yeah. And Bobby's like, you get off on it. And he was like, and you don't. Again, there's an interesting pattern of bad guys trying to equate what is inside Buffy and Buffy's power with theirs. We had mm-hmm. the initiative, we have Angelus, we have in this season Dracula. There's a lot of similarities between Spike and Dracula in this um in this episode. And Even the first Slayer was trying to say, hey, no, you're like me. A lot of people trying to define Buffy's power. And that's not to say that there isn't aspects that are similar, but in completely comparing it, they're taking away any sort of definition that Buffy may have for herself, which is just not okay.
2: You know what I have I just thought of right now? I feel like when people say that Spike is, has intuition about other people, sometimes I, I kind of feel like it's more of like he recognizes emotions that he feels that other people yep. also feel. He's
1: projecting a so, lot in this episode. Yes. <laughs> and so
2: a lot of the times I feel like he is correct. Like when he talks about like Willow mourning and going through a breakup, he's correct because he is connected to that emotion at all times. The pining, the the sadness, the heartbreak. And in this mm-hmm. moment, it's him being like it he assumes people feel or have gone through what he has also gone through so he doesn't believe buffy when she's like i don't get off on it like you can see him be yeah. like yeah for sure like it's because he's projecting his reality on her
3: well spike is like a classic narcissist he can't uh empathize with anybody else and he basically doesn't believe you if you say that you've had a different emotional reaction mm-hmm. to something than he has. Yep. He's like, well, you're obviously lying because I felt that. And if I felt yep. that, then you have to have felt that.
2: Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like, a it's people like that. It's hard to really get close to in a real sense because you can only really connect in ways that they um are able to connect to based on their experiences. So it's like, unless you kind of align with, the stuff they've gone through, then you can connect with them. But then, if it's anything that you've gone through, they haven't gone through, it, it, there's they're not going to be able to, you know, understand you, or understand that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, sorry. This is the part where Riley goes into the crypt and then bombs it.
1: Yeah, yada yada, drops a bomb back to Spike. Yep. <laughs> back to back to Spike and Buffy. Then we make it out into the alleyway outside of the Bronze she
2: asked him how he won and he says the question isn't how i win it's how they lose um which is a very very important question it's a different perspective that i think she need to like she needs to understand and needs to um ask more questions about and like then this oh oh my gosh this part i love because he's like hey like he kind of talks about how like there's an intention to kill when you're sparring. And then there's just like what he calls dancing. So he like Mm -hmm. swings at her and she dodges and she's like, well, that didn't hurt. And he's like, that's because I knew I couldn't kill you. Um, And then like, obviously in the second we kind of bounce back into like 1977, where he's like sparring with um, that slayer. And he kind of talks about how both of her and Buffy are very similar. He's like, Oh, like we danced like similar to you and I or whatever. Um, go ahead, Kimberly. So I have a, a little headcanon about Spike here. Um,
4: and I think Spike uh, reads Jane Austen. I think Spike loves Jane Austen. I mean, like Jane Austen was a little bit before his time. But, um, but you know, he's romantic. He loves love stories and the whole pining aspect of all Jane Austen, I'm sure he would totally love. Anyways, um, the, in the beginning, the flashback to when, you know, he's trying to write poetry for Cecily and all that kind of stuff that originally reminded me of Pride and Prejudice when like Elizabeth and Darcy and some of the other main characters are all standing around talking. And, um, basically one of the, one of the people is like, well, I thought poetry is like the food of love. And Elizabeth is like, you know, I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but she's like, you know, of, you know, maybe a strong, fine, stout love, maybe poetry is, but for some weak sort of love, like she's like, one good sonnet would kill it stone dead. And it's like, that's what um, that whole beginning scene reminded me of. And then, um, but back to Pride and Prejudice, then Darcy, who's starting to really be into Elizabeth at this point, he's like, okay, well, what would you recommend to encourage affection? And Elizabeth says, dancing. And I could totally see like Spike reading that and being like, this is what I need. (laughs) When I like, no more poetry, dancing. (laughs) So yeah, that's my little, I could totally see him like having in his crypt, like the Barnes and Noble hardback special editions of Jane Austen, like (laughs) right in there for sure. But yeah, that was just my little thought.
1: That's hilarious. I can see it, especially with him watching Passions and Dawson's mm-hmm. Creek. Like, exactly. No he loves his soaps that and everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: That's hilarious. Oh, my gosh. And then just this kickstarts, like, all of those amazing, like, um transitions because we have, like, Buffy on top of Spike and then she rolls off Spike to, like, a flashback into 97.7 in the train station. And we have this layer – um, with the coat on, and she's just gorgeous. This actress is like stunning. Um, and then Spike looks like Billy Idol. Like this whole sequence is just mm-hmm. great.
1: It's interesting how with the dancing, Spike says the thing about the dancing is you never get to stop. So with dancing, there's obviously what we're talking about here. There it's the idea of it's the act of slaying. It's the responsibility of life. It's the dance of life. You're going through the motions and yet everybody knows they're eventually going to die. Um, there's also the sexual element. Um, they're doing this dance, but inevitably they're going to sleep together, you know? Um and him saying the thing about dancing is you never get to stop. with When it comes to the idea of slaying, and I think Leo was kind of talking about this earlier on in the episode, was talking about responsibility and this idea that like Buffy as the slayer wishes she could take that burden of slaying off so she could rest, so she could stop. And what Spike talks about at the end of this episode is you don't get to stop. You don't get freedom from responsibility until you're dead, because then the burden is literally passed from you to another slayer. Um, and I'll talk 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 about that more in a minute, but the visual symmetry between the two scenes cutting back and forth is part of what makes this episode so unique and fun to watch. And it creates this idea of a dance passing of a partner back and forth. We're passing the shot back and back and back. And it creates a sense of inevitability for Buffy um, as if they're both just going through the motions, knowing how it's all going to end. Both of them are able to see each other's movements. They know how it's going to happen. And so what it does is it, it, I've seen it also, people have talked about equating it to having sex. It, It, it goes faster and faster until it climaxes and then it gets silent. And then after that, you have like that final, he says, the final breath, the look of peace. And he says, every slayer has a death wish, even you. And then he starts talking about stuff. And, um, it's just interesting how the pacing of this episode and this scene is, is building to something. And, it feels that way when it comes to life and for Buffy. She's doing this dance. She's going through life. She's a slayer, but she knows she's going to die at some point. And she knows she's going to die sooner than anybody else. And I just think the way that this visually tells the story is what makes this episode so above many mm-hmm. other episodes and so memorable.
2: Well, there's so many like other moving parts. There's like the the story that they're showing us, the story through each character's perspective, and then the underlying themes. And that's what makes Buffy in general so great. Is because like, I mean, this is why like there's people who fall all over the spectrum with different opinions on the show. Because there's like the story they're giving us, and then there's subjectivity with mm-hmm. other themes. Um, sometimes I'm like, did I watch the same show as like <laughs> someone else's opinions? Cause I'm like, what in the world? Because that's my viewpoint and how I I see a lot of like um some of these episodes or how these characters are feeling or whatever. And that's like what art is too. Um, Mm -hmm. And this episode is just – the epitome of that. It's really great. Yeah. So
1: the other thing I was going to say was so in this episode, Nikki dies with what looks like a look of peace. Um, and this reviewer Shangel's Review says, in Spike's Twisted Mind, it's almost as though he thinks he's doing the slayers a favor by killing them and giving them some peace. He's yeah. fulfilling their death wish. In this moment, Spike is saying that all the nonstop fear and uncertainty of being a slayer is what leads them to wanting the peace of death, which if you're looking at the sub subtext of sexual, of a whole sexual thing is kind of gross because then it's this idea of like, she wants it. She wanted the sex, even though that isn't necessarily what's happening. That's the subtext that's happening here. Um, if we're going, and the show is very clear on that. So it's this idea of she wanted it. But then there's also the idea of Spike being the unreliable narrator in this moment um, because this idea of like spike he he killed he didn't kill the slayers they wanted to die we have no idea if this is actually true because the slayers don't speak except for that one girl that says tell my mom you know that i i said i'm sorry or tell my mom i'm sorry um we don't know if they wanted to die or not we're going based off of spike's idea of them and he's very much projecting onto buffy just like he could be projecting onto mm-hmm. these um there's also another instance another reason why we know this is might not be true and probably is not true. In School Hard, the first time we ever meet Spike, he tells us that the last slayer that he killed begged for her life. Nikki what is the last slayer. Here we don't see her beg for her uh, life. Oh,
2: yeah.
1: Um, the episode, again, is structured as a flashback, but we do know that Nikki did beg for her life. And the reason we do know there's a later episode in another – yeah, there's a later episode that's one of my favorite episodes ever where – we find out that um, Nikki did beg for the life of her and for someone else. Um, It's possible that Spike is either not remembering correctly because he's projecting or he's intentionally not doing so because he wants to have a specific narrative. But it's very important to remember in this moment with what he's telling Buffy, again, that it's not all correct. So, I just wanted to point that out. Um, and then again, continuing on with the, this idea of responsibility, Spike is putting off his responsibility for the Slayer's deaths by saying they wanted it. This is, it's not his fault, it's theirs. And this goes along with that theme of responsibility in order to move forward, in order to actually be a fully fledged adult with your own identity, you have to take responsibility for your actions. And Spike is not. And so, um, Mark Field has this really interesting quote, and then I'll be done, I promise. He says, one consequence of death is that it terminates the responsibility we all accept as authentic existentialist acts in the world. The Slayer bears the ultimate in that responsibility. She alone can save the world from the vampires, the demons, and the forces of darkness. And it's only by her death that she can pass that responsibility to another. The Slayers he killed, we might reinterpret Spike to say, wanted to let go of that responsibility. It had become too much for them to bear. Keeping in mind the good reasons to be scared Skeptical of Spike's claims, the message to Buffy that only death allows the Slayer to pass on her responsibility strikes me as correct and consistent with what we'll see later in the season. So, this idea of responsibility, him passing the buck to Buffy, but then also him not taking responsibility for his own actions in the past. So, I'll get off my soapbox now. I just thought that was really interesting and something I'd never really thought about before.
2: This is why we do the podcast with you, Sarah. I know. There's so many things that you say that I'm like, I could not have worded it that way. Good job. Oh, thank you. Let
1: me pull up my scroll. <laughs> I saw the group chat. I see what you guys are saying. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> David posted it when I was on my monologue. He's like Sarah's notes for the episode <laughs> oh, with <yeah>. a scroll. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> then he says back in the um in the alleyway, he says, sooner or later death will catch you. Part of you wants it. Um kind of this is before the whole Death Wish scene, but he kind of insinuates it. Back on the train, he's the, the Slayer is on top. They go through a tunnel, and then we see Spike on top. And he's kind of glancing at a Buffy from down at the ground um, and says, Death is your art. You make it with your hands day after day. That final gasp, that look of peace. Part of you is desperate to know. What's it like? Where does it lead you? That's the secret. Not the punch you didn't throw or the kicks you didn't land. She merely wanted it. Every slayer has a death wish. And then he snaps her neck.
1: Yep. It's it's also important to note too, like in comparisons with the Darla episode, over on Angel, Darla is trying to convince Angel that he's really evil and that he hasn't changed. And that her whole goal in coming back is to bring out that darkness and say, this is who you are. And I see what Spike doing here is very similar. It's It serves him to do so because then baby Buffy will want him. But also it makes him feel better about himself and the choices and decisions he has made in the past. If there is no fundamental difference between a slayer and a vampire, as Spike is trying to say, then that means there's no need for a slayer and she's lost her purpose. And it's in Spike's best interest to convince Buffy that she's dark, she's evil, and there's no difference between them because it makes her more touchable. It tears down her self-esteem, tears down her purpose, and maybe she'll come crawling to him. So, like, it's really important again to like filter through what Spike is saying because there's an ulterior motive here.
2: And he says the only reasons he's lasted as long as she's lasted as long as she has is because she has ties to the world and then lifts off all the people lists off all the people that she loves around her which we've always known that not only is buffy really creative and passionate and has like emotional ties in her fights because she inherently wants to win she's very like it's not just her technique like we've known that since you know season one and two when she's talking to kendra like but she also has people that she's allowed herself to get close to and open up to because i feel like a lot of slayers are scared to do that Because it's the whole classic hero thing. It's like the Peter Parker constantly breaking up with MJ because, or even Gwen, because he doesn't want them to get killed. Like it's the classic, I can't have a girlfriend because I can't be close with anyone, yada, yada, yada. But Buffy, it's always been important to her to kind of like, and we've talked about this a lot in her wardrobe. Like she, it's very important for Buffy to have her own essence her own life her own personality her friends her loved ones because she doesn't want to fully let her slayer side take over because she is buffy outside of being the slayer so wearing Mm -hmm. heels wearing cute dresses while she's patrolling is a way for her to kind of maintain that in herself and same thing with her friends it's like this like she brings some patrolling rather than keeping them away. Like obviously she's there mm-hmm. most of the time to protect them, but she also trusts them and, and they have willingly done that for her because they love her. Um, I mean, even O'Reilly Riley goes out patrolling sometimes for her as we see in this, <laughs> this episode, but like everyone knows that everyone who comes in as a big bad, every person knows that because the slayer has people and has ties to this world she has a leg up because she has something to fight for. She has a life to fight Mm -hmm. for. Um, which is why Mm -hmm. spike brings us in like, and like, I mean, we, we see the girl from the box rebellion say that like, Oh, tell my mother, I'm sorry. But it's like, she was by herself up there. There was no one else. We have Nikki in the train. No one's on the train. Like we don't see anyone else around Mm -hmm. when they're fighting. Um, Whereas every time there's been an apocalypse, Buffy has been surrounded by her friends. Mm-hmm. And obviously we won't – I mean, this is like one shot for both these slayers, but like it is, it is important to note that they could have had people in the background while he's fighting both mm-hmm. these slayers and that they were in closed spaces by themselves. Um, he says they they tie her here, but they're, but they're putting off the inevitable and that sooner or later she's going to want it um, and the second that happens, he'll be there.
1: And then he comes on to Buffy and she says, It wouldn't be you, Spike, it would never be you. And then she pushes him down and tosses the money on top and says, You're beneath me. Okay. Thoughts on this moment.
0: Which this time is actually <laughs> deserved. Because he is. And also like like the whole interaction of him like trying to kiss her, misreading it, like there's there's so much here that it's like he's yeah. delusional. Like He's, and he's also taking advantage of Buffy's very clearly mm-hmm. vulnerable state. Like, like, it's, it's well deserved. Yeah. And I like that he cries <laughs> that it his feelings because it should've. <laughs> I love Spike, but it's like he deserved it. Like
1: he needed to be humbled like that. I've seen so many people say, "Poor Spike," and how dare Buffy be mean to poor Spike in this moment? He has
0: no soul.
1: He, he tried just talked her, about like,
0: killing two, murdering two slayers. Uh-huh. Like what? <laughs> well, and sh- the reason why she gets so upset is because he's also talking about how if he had the chance, a second before he would take that, up in and then he tries kissing to kill her right her. after that. Yes, it's not even about because Angelus talked about previous kills. It's not about the previous kills. It's about the fact that he was talking about if given the chance he would do the same exact thing to Buffy. I don't care if his feelings got hurt.
3: I see Spike is more pathetic here than like... Mm -hmm. I, I don't feel bad about for him. I, I just kind of get like an ick about it. You're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like he just comes off as like a whiny, like want to be nice guy. Who's like, Oh, I taught mm-hmm. you all these cool things. And I thought we were having this like dance, but he's saying like super intense, cringy things the entire time. And the coming on her in a very aggressive manner. It's like, no dude, like you deserve to get put down a peg or two.
1: Yeah. First of all, he's evil and soulless. She could stake him and she'd be 100% justified. The fact that she doesn't shows her own moral compass personally. Secondly, he boasted about killing other girls like Buffy, Where's their items like trophies. And getting off on it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. yes. He's saying you wanted it. So therefore, like that means I'm going to – like I've said it before. I swear if Buffy hit him hard enough. he he would orgasm like I think no he was on the precipice
2: well because he was (laughs) quote unquote dancing with her this whole time he's like that's all we ever do is dance and then for him like talking about that the dancing the fighting and then also being like I want to kill you and sex is all the same thing like he has hard time differentiating all those things so in the moment when he's like this intense Mm -hmm. um, emotion towards Buffy he's like I mean Like, cause there's that whole, like, love is, hate is the opposite of love, which is not actually true. Like, it's, um, indifference is the opposite of love. Mm. Um, and so, like, there's those moments of, like, they're, like, hate and love are very similar in emotion. And if you're emotionally unintelligent, you're in the moment, not gonna, you're not gonna know how to differentiate Mm -hmm. the two. So, like, when he's sitting there and he's feeling this strong emotion towards Buffy when they're sparring and they're talking about death and how he, like, got off on it, like, Of course, he would think that way based on how his brain works, like not saying that's okay. I'm saying that that's how his brain works. Um, And the fact that like the first time I watched this episode, I remember being like, oh, is he leaning in? Because, like, you know how you can usually yeah. tell when it's about to happen? I didn't yeah. pick up on the fact that, until, like, a second before he did. I was like, is he the like, question mark? Yeah. And then he did. Like, I was like, like, Buffy, I was like, well, what the heck? You could tell Buffy being like, where is this coming from, you know? Yeah. And like yeah. David said, when he's crying, it's not like I feel bad for him. It's like a, oh, like – this is pathetic like you need to figure out what this is like where is this coming from like obviously we know where the trigger is coming from but like like dude
3: (laughs) and it's interesting too that when he goes to get revenge he brings a shotgun a very human weapon like he doesn't go after her with her with his fangs he doesn't like you know do some elaborate vampire thing like he goes after her with a gun like he's he's like no i'm gonna kill this bitch like yep. I'm, I'm not going to enjoy it I'm not going to prolong it I'm not going to with. yeah I'm just going to kill her
2: mm-hmm. I think that's also because he feels embarrassed it's not yep. because like yep. like if he sat about it for, a, for a, a moment or two he probably would be like oh he's in a way we move on but he's living in this mindset of being rejected and it's triggering him deeply in this moment and he yes. needs to get rid of her
1: and that's I wrote that down they, the show purposely shows Cecily, Buffy. We have Harmony in the next episode or in the next scene. Drusilla, all these important women featured in Spike's episode. They are either rejecting him or pointing out his inability to create his own life and meaning apart from them. Harmony calls him sensitive too. She does. And she says, you had many chances to kill Buffy yet you can't. She mentions the chip, but we've heard the chip conflated with uh, Riley's chip, which is in his heart. And so there's this idea that your, your own self, not necessarily the chip, won't let you kill Buffy. Um, And this moment hurts Spike because not only does Buffy see through his facade, but it also proves that no matter his costume, he still is that scared, purposeless fool that he was as a human. And that's what they hammer home with the related, you're beneath me. Um, And that's why I believe that I like what you said, Tabs. I don't think He told Buffy that that's what Cecily said to him. I think the fact that somebody else saw that and recognized that in Mm -hmm. him a hundred and something years later looking completely different, that's deeply triggering. And that's why he goes to kill her. There's different types of –
2: obviously, everyone knows there's different types of trauma. But I feel like we all have some trauma that's rooted in embarrassment and or humiliation. And this is one of those specific ones that if saying it out loud to somebody in a moment of vulnerability would – it's like some trauma, it feels better getting off your chest, but ones that are rooted in humiliation, you don't even want to voice out loud. Yeah. Like, and that includes like rejection. Rejection is like, it's, it's like one of the hardest things because you're being vulnerable in the moment, especially mm-hmm. when you're in a moment of like confessing your love to somebody and they reject you. It's deeply, it feels humiliating. It feels like you, you feel rejected. You don't feel loved. You don't mm-hmm. feel like seeing like all these sorts of things. And so like, like he probably never told a soul. I don't think that he told Buffy that. Um, mm-hmm. and so Yeah, I, think I, don't, I don't
3: think so either. That would go very yeah. against, uh, like, who he's he trying wants to the world to see him as. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Like, he wants the world to see him as William the Bloody, the guy who killed two slayers, the terror yeah. of the mm-hmm. centuries. He doesn't want them to see him as, you know, the guy who uh, had his soul crushed by the beautiful woman, two, what, yep, a yeah. couple hundred years, 200 years ago, whatever, you know.
2: Yeah, Or if he did, he'd paint it in a way of like, I just loved her so much and she didn't, just didn't see me or whatever. He could paint it in some beautiful, unrequited way, not in like the specifics you're beneath me sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have our last flashback to 1998 with Drew and our chaos demon, the fungus demon, whatever, the syrupy looking demon. Um, <laughs> and this is like right after they leave, after becoming part two. Um, and Drew's like, why can't you kill her? they're fighting and oh my gosh Juliet's acting in this scene I just have to applaud because this is a different side of Drew we've never seen so far on the show of Buffy the look in her eyes is deep hurt like yes she's like cheated on Spike and like she has she can't blame a girl whatever you know you have funny pleasure or whatever but it's like it, like she's like, you're all covered in her. The look in her eyes is like, I'm tired of like acting as if playing second this, fiddle. Yeah. Like it's yeah. like like I mean, Drew's always kind of played the field a little bit.
3: Like, yeah. Uh, Spike yeah. is literally playing second fiddle to Jerpy Dude in that scene.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, even with Angelus in season two, yeah, she toyed exactly. with him in front of like Spike in the wheelchair the whole season. Yep. Um But like the look in her eyes is just like she knew that he was too far gone at that moment. Their relationship was like – it wasn't coming back. And I think kind of in some weird twisted way worked with Spike's and Drew's relationship that like because Spike doesn't have confidence in himself, it's like seeing her flirt with somebody else but then ending up with him somehow kind of like – um stroked his ego a little bit that's Mm kind of how i viewed their dynamic so even with angelus even whatever it definitely made him angry or or, on all that but like i think the fact that he like and drew would always kind of be together there was like this weird twisted Mm -hmm. thing with both of them but in this moment it's like she can tell and he hasn't recognized in himself doesn't want to own up to it that the fact that like it's just Mm -hmm. different their relationship is different
1: well, and he's not taking responsibility. He's compl- yeah. He he keeps saying, oh, no, that's, that's not me. That's not me. That's not me. And then we after this, we have lover's walk. That's when he goes back. And we yeah. have the whole love's bitch speech, which mm-hmm. he says to Buffy and Angel, which is interesting because what Drusilla is telling him right here is, find your purpose, Spike. Be your own man. And that's why he's such a wreck in lover's walk, because not only is he wrestling with the fact that Drew dumped him, and he might, you know, has this obsession with Buffy that he's trying to suppress. He's, again, finding his identity in a woman, which is causing Drew to pull back from him, and he's trying desperately to put on this costume, but Drew is pointing out the exact same problem that he had when she turned to him.
2: And I know this question might be a little bit hard to answer because you guys obviously have all seen the rest of the show, but based on where we are in the show right now, We know that he has an obsession with Slayers, but what do you think Drew is getting out in the scene? Is it his obsession with Slayers and that's what's getting him, like, all, like, kind of, like, out of it in their relationship that he's obsessed with wanting to kill Buffy, that he can't let her go? Or is it, like, a – he's in love with Buffy and is, like, addicted to her and can't get her out of, her like, his brain? Like, what do you think it is right now?
3: I think it's probably a little bit of both. Um, Yeah. You know, like yeah. it has been shown that all throughout the relationship, Drew is has other guys, angel, the demon, whatever, right? But Spike has been devoted to only her. He's been obsessed with only her. And his entire focus has been on Drusella. And now he's obsessed with another woman. And even if it's even if it's just oh I want to kill her or whatever, he's still obsessed with her. And I think that Drusella is is jealous and she's used to that that attention. Um and she's used to that like devotion that Spike has only shown for her that he's now showing for Buffy. And whether or not Spike is actually in love with Buffy at this point cuz I actually don't think he is. I think Spike That's falls obsession. in Yeah, I think Spike falls in love with Buffy after he gets the chip in. Um is still obsession. He's obsessed with her. And I don't think Jeru'silla can handle Spike being obsessed with anybody else or anything else other than her.
1: We have to remember, too, Drusilla was able to somehow see the deepest, darkest part and desire of Spike when she changed him. Drusilla is a seer. She can see into the future. Um, It's possible that he maybe wasn't even that obsessed with Buffy at the time that she was saying all this, but she was confusing things that were going to happen in the future. Or she saw the future and saw the inevitable and like, there's a lot of there's a lot of explanations here, um, because Drusilla is able to kind of see things both past and present and stuff. So it's a good question. Though. Also,
2: I also have to point out too, just to prove that he's an unreliable narrator, is we finally saw the actual POV of this conversation. And in Lover's Walk, he says, "And I walk." He's talking to Willow, and he's like, "And I walked in, she was with the fungus demon," and he's like crying and making it seem like like she's like. He walks in on them having sex. Like she's cheating on him and he's so hurt. And like he doesn't say why he never talks about this conversation. And that's just further proof from seasons ago that he is an unreliable narrator and has to kind Mm -hmm. of paint it in a way that he looks a certain Mm -hmm. way. Um, Yeah. So um, the last two scenes here we have back at the house. We have Buffy enjoys talking. Buffy kind of takes care of. Um, the list for tomorrow the grocery list and joyce is packing for an overnight trip at the hospital for a cat scan um uh, joyce
0: is such a yeah. wonderful mother like even in a situation that could be so scary for her and everything like that she's so quick to try and affirm buffy and be like it's it's only overnight mm-hmm. it's not that scary you know um and it's just so it's so sad to watch because whether it is nothing or whether it's not, it's like Joyce's prioritizing Buffy mm-hmm. over herself. Um, and, you know, she's one of the only people who really mm-hmm. does that for Buffy. Like, a lot of other people
2: really don't care about protecting mm-hmm. Buffy's feelings. And then she's like, I'm gonna be fine. And Buffy says, I know you will. Mm-hmm. And then even, oh my gosh, Sarah Michelle Gilla is acting, but even when she's like, I know you will, her eyes are already getting a little watery. And then she walks out on the back porch and then starts to kind of like let herself really cry and sob um and then spike comes up with the biggest gun ever uh, he is like, and he's like spallic weaponry even, now <laughs> he's not even like trying to be quiet Too like like leaves are snap or like oh twigs are snapping like you can hear the gun like hitting against his jacket like and buffy just is not she she is like doesn't care like And she hasn't even looked up yet at this point. Like, she probably knows he's there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then she looks up. um, He asks what's wrong. And usually when girls in movies, when they're asked, they're like, I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, okay. But in this moment, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to talk about it either. Like, (laughs) I really believe her. And then James Marster's acting, too, is just stellar. He goes through so many thoughts in his brain in this moment and doesn't say a word. Like, he sits there. And it's, like, the whole, like, like, what the heck? How could she? And then, like, annoyed. And then, like, uh, oh, shoot. And then, like, uh, what do I do? Okay, softening. All right, I'll go sit by her. Like, there's so many emotions (laughs) that he has. Um, And then he sits down and says, is there something I can do? Buffy looks confused. Um, And then pats on the back awkwardly. And they just sit in (laughs) silence.
1: This moment is interesting, and I, I like how it shows a layeredness to Spike, um, and I I know people, people like to make much of this moment. <laughs> um, personally, I think that this moment is nothing more than Buffy just allowing Spike to be there next to her, um, yeah. because it feels like in a lot of ways she's just kind of in shock, she has no energy to kick him out too. <laughs> She's like, I'm no. so I'm so tired.
3: See, the way I see it too is that Spike desperately wants to be needed and he desperately wants to feel validation and to feel mm-hmm. like he is health-worth. Yeah. And now Buffy needs him, even though she didn't ask for him, but she needs him to be there to help comfort her. And all of a sudden he now gets that validation of, oh, this strong woman needs me in any capacity. And then his ego is stroked enough that he forgets about his desire to want to kill her, (laughs) you know, because like the whole thing was like, oh, you're beneath me. But now she needs me. So obviously I can't be that beneath Mm. her if I'm offering something of value in this moment. And so, you know, I I think that it's just like it may not be in the way he wants, but it is an intimate moment. He's touching her and she's Mm -hmm. bearing her at least a portion of her soul to him. And I think that Mm -hmm. is a bit of an ego. Um, stroke to, to spike in this moment.
1: All Things Philosophical says the transformation from Poetry Boy into Danger Boy is not unprecedented. Owen from the first season was a brooding poet who only felt alive when the adrenaline was coursing through his veins and his life was at a risk. Spike is just Owen taken to an extreme. Spike wants to get close to death as he can when he tells Buffy that she has a death wish he could have been talking about himself. This philosophy of killing also helps explain why he didn't kill Buffy at the end of the episode. There would have been no sport in finishing the broken and helpless Slayer. And I think it was just it was a change in what he wanted most in that moment. And in that moment, like David said, he was like, oh, Buffy's helpless. Because we have to remember, Spike doesn't have a soul. So even if he like as close as he can get to loving, it's still going to be a selfish form of love. It's not going to be selfless. And so this moment, yes, he didn't kill her. Wow, bare minimum. But he's doing this because he ultimately gets something out of it.
3: Well, I don't even think that Spike's capable of love because love isn't just intense feelings about somebody. Love is the desire to put them before you. Love is a desire and an action. It's living for that person. It's sacrificing for that person. It's, it's putting them above you. And Spike hates it when other people are above him. It's literally his worst fear. That's what we've been talking about this whole episode. So Spike Mm -hmm. has these huge feelings and he's infatuated with these women, but he doesn't actually love them and I don't think he knows the difference.
0: I think that vampires without souls are Mm -hmm. incapable of love. I think it is only obsession and lust. Because love ultimately demands like an an amount of self-sacrifice and like unselfishness mm-hmm. just like you were saying David and vampires are literally only ever selfish like they do things for their own self-interest even when Spike is trying to do something for Buffy
1: even innately, it's it's always for itself. Yeah. All Things Philosophical, again, says, Let us not mistake obsession and lust with love. The only reason Buffy and Angel could become a couple was because he had a soul. And even then, the inherent conflict between Slayer and Vampire could never really be resolved. Spike is a demon without a soul and without any remorse for the suffering he's caused. Quite the opposite, Spike revels in informing Buffy about the murder and mayhem of his past. I believe that part of the reason he's so fixated on Buffy is because she represents the true vampire life he is being deprived of because of the chip. The one thing that has been constant in the Buffyverse is that vampires are killers, demons with traces of their host's prior lives and identities. This accounts for Spike's bouts of sensitivity. In order for Spike to love Buffy, he would actually have to renounce who he truly is. And although we have encountered demons who are not evil, there has never been one case of a vampire renouncing his true nature except for Angel. I, I think that's right. I think just because he's nice to her in this moment doesn't mean that it's love.
3: <laughs> I think. But I think Spike's just getting what he wants, which is yeah. to, to feel needed.
2: Yep. And him, him and Riley. Riley. are I was about to say. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah.
3: Riley yeah. had
2: this similar situation earlier when it came to Buffy. You know. Yep. They yep.
3: both need to be told they're enough.
2: <laughs> By Barbie specifically, <laughs> not anyone else. <laughs>
3: Where's <laughs> Barbie when you need her?
1: <laughs> on the on the back porch crying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, all right. That was Full for Love. That was meaty. That was weighty. There was a lot. Thanks for bearing with us, you guys. Um, thank you so much, Kimberly and David, for coming and talking with us about this episode. Uh, hope I didn't talk your guys' ear off. And I'm sorry it's so late. But thank you again for joining us. And you're always welcome.
3: <laughs> I had fun. Yeah, thanks
1: for having us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, let us know your thoughts. We would love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and Tumblr at Becoming Podcast, and you can email us at becomingbuffypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support us or hear our spoiler section for each of these episodes, plus a few other perks, you can join our Buy Me A Coffee membership at buymeacoffee.com slash Buffy. Shout out and special thank you to our producers, Ann, CJ, Paul, Chrissy, Kate, and Sophie. Thank you to our listeners, and we'll talk to you all next time.